Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 37 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome best-selling author and Harvard astronomer, Abby Loeb, a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Time Magazine named him one of the 25 most influential people in the realm of space. But today, we'll be primarily discussing his latest best-selling book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. In fact, Loeb has been on a worldwide media tour, appearing on CNN, CBS, Fox News, and a plethora of global media outlets to discuss the idea that in 2017, our solar system was visited by an alien robotic probe. Loeb joins us from outside Boston. Avi, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks for having me. First off, uh, before we get started in the details about the object, Oumuamua, have you been surprised by the amount of media attention this book has gotten? Definitely. Uh, I did not anticipate uh, about six weeks of nonstop back-to-back uh, interviews um, from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. Uh, in fact, my uh, uh, literary agent uh, warned me that uh, when I go to speak with Joe Rogan, I should have a good breakfast because it would last three hours. <laughs> and she didn't even imagine that uh, we're talking here about a marathon that is much longer than three hours, perhaps uh, six weeks uh, so far. Good gosh. Well, congratulations. Uh, and I believe this book was even in the New York Times bestseller list. Yes. Uh, well, it was on, on the first week of its uh, appearance. And the only reason that uh, it's slipping out of it right now is because the publisher did not uh, produce enough copies so that they have a hard time uh, copying, uh, pr- uh, printing enough uh, hard copies, and we, uh, there are about uh, forty thousand uh, copies on back order right now. Well, that's every author's dream. So congratulations. Anyway, Thank on you. the Oumuamua on October nineteenth, twenty seventeen, astronomer Robert Wirick at the Haleakala Observatory discovered this object in data collected by the Pan-STARRS telescope. In fact, images showed the object as a point of light speeding across the sky. It subsequently became the first interstellar object ever detected in our solar system. And the Hawaiian word Oumuamua is loosely translated as scout. That's one of the translations. But we did not and do not have a crisp photograph of the object to rely on. Uh, because it was too small uh, for its distance, and our telescope cannot um, resolve it. Of course, uh, if we were to have um, a camera fly by it, we could have taken a photograph. And, you know, a a picture is worth a a thousand words, as as people say, but in my case, a picture would have been worth 66,000 words, which are the number of words uh, in my book. (laughs) Okay. But anyway, for the next 11 nights observatories around the world collected data that uh, would help them characterize the object in more detail. And they were particularly interested in how it reflected sunlight. Why was that that so important? Well, the only way for us to see it is uh, using the, the sun as a projector uh, illuminating it and because the object itself does not emit much light. In fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope uh, looked for any infrared light emitted by the object and couldn't see it. 
So given that we know the surface temperature of the object, we could set an upper limit on its size so that uh, Spitzer would not see it, which uh, was smaller than a football field, uh, a few hundred feet. Therefore, it, it must have had this uh, relatively high reflectance in order for us to see the reflected sunlight because we know that it was smaller than this size. If it was 10 times smaller, then it must have been like a mirror reflecting everything falling on it. But uh, at any event, it's at the higher end of uh, the objects we see in terms of reflectance or being shiny. And you wrote in your book that the objects identified anomalies. It's unusual orbit without a tail, without a cometary tail, that is. Its extreme shape, its luminosity, make it statistically different by a large margin from all other objects cataloged by humanity. Right. So we have seen uh, rocks in the solar system for many years. And uh, uh, generally speaking, they fall into two categories, either comets uh, that have uh, uh, ice on their surface. So when they get close to the sun, the ice uh, evaporates and generates uh, the appearance of a cometary tail with gas and dust uh, surrounding the object. The, The other type is just rocks without any ice and Nothing evaporates, and these are called asteroids. And um, uh, first of all, uh, the, uh, the astronomers that discovered it assumed that, well, it would probably be a comet because comets are often coming from the outer part of the solar system, and those are the regions where they are loosely bound to the sun. So if a passing star uh, exerts a strong enough force on them, they would be lost into interstellar space, and Therefore, most of the objects in interstellar space would appear as comets. But Oumuamua had no cometary tail whatsoever. And in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around it and didn't find any trace of carbon-based molecules or dust. So it's definitely not a comet. And then, of course, some people said, oh, well, maybe it's uh, just a rock, a bare rock, an asteroid. Uh, The problem with that was that it did show Uh, exhibit a push away from the sun uh, by another force in addition to the force of gravity that pulls it to the sun. And uh, this push usually is provided by the cometary outgassing that the gas that moves one way is pushing it the other way, just like in a rocket. But uh, since there was no gas, the question was, what gives it this additional push? And the force uh, was declining inversely with distance squared from the sun. It was a smooth extra force. If it were a comet, it had to lose a tenth of its mass uh, to get this excess push. And that's a lot of mass, and we would have seen it for R- sure. Right. Uh, but we didn't. So the brightness, initial brightness that you observed, uh, astronomers who were making the obser- observations from observatories globally, you, you noticed that it, the brightness varied t- by a tenfold every eight hours. And so you write in your book that this dramatic variability in its brightness told us that Oumuamua's shape was extreme, or at least five to ten times longer than it is wide. Right. So um, that is quite extreme, more extreme than we have seen for any other object before. And just think about a piece of paper tumbling in the wind. Uh, uh, it's very unlikely for it to be exactly a John and a variation by a factor of 10 in, in the area that you see. 
uh, is quite unusual as it is tumbling. And uh, moreover, uh, when uh, astronomers try to fit the variation in the amount of reflected light as it was tumbling over eight hours, um, they found that uh, the best fit is with uh, a pancake shape uh, uh, geometry and so, not a cigar shape the way that it was depicted in some cartoons. So let me so, so let me just interrupt you there. So are you saying that there are two two motions? I mean, there's its velocity, its trajectory uh, as as it speeds through the solar system or through the interstellar space. But you're also saying that it had two other rotate had it actually had a, a, a rotation where it actually was rotating as yes a, as it was any, tumbling uh, was it tumbling or rotating? Well, it, it, it uh, rotation is around the fixed axis, right? And tumbling is sort of uh, complicated. It, rotation. Tumbling is end over end, isn't it? So in other words, if you're tumbling, if I if I see a a, a, a a space rock that's elongated coming toward Earth, you know, as depicted in some of these Hollywood sci-fi movies, and sometimes they're seen like tumbling end over end, the way a gym, gymnast would tumble end over end, you know, <laughs> on a on a uh, on a gym mat. So, are you saying that it had both? It was both tumbling as well as rotating in a in a in a har, uh, on a horizontal axis. Yeah, so uh, now we we can only try to model the way it was moving because um, we only saw the reflected light, but it was clear that it's not spinning around the fixed axis. So oh, it was okay. doing a complicated motion. And uh, also it's clear that it's not uh, in control, you know. So even if it's artificial, uh, it's not... Uh, <laughs> Uh, operational, you know, it's not something that is in full control of its motion. And uh, but at any event, it's uh, pancake shaped, uh -huh. and uh, that's also very unusual for uh, an object on the sky. So you write, so you wrote in your book that uh, uh, Oumuamua needed to be less than a meter thick for the force of sunlight to be effective. And nature had shown no ability to produce anything like the size and composition of what our assumptions assumed or suggested. That's how you got this idea that this thing could be artificial and maybe like a light sail. But what you just told me, which I haven't heard before, is that even if it is a light sail, what you're saying, it's not moving in a controlled motion. It's like a spacecraft or a, even if it is a robotic probe, for the sake of argument, you're saying this robotic probe has motion which is uh, exhibiting an out-of-control dynamic. Yes, but uh, one thing to keep in mind is, you know, if you imagine this being artificial and uh, uh, space trash is the most likely explanation because, you know, we sent out Voyager 1, Voyager 2, and New Horizons and others uh, into interstellar space. And actually the fact that it's out of control is not surprising because the sun is a relatively latecomer. Most of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy form before the sun. Therefore, if they had civilizations around them, uh, those civilizations deposited objects into space, you know, billions of years ago. And uh, it, just imagine uh, a probe that we sent out, like uh, uh, Voyager 1 or Voyager 2 or New Horizons. Uh, what will happen to them within a billion years from now? Obviously, they will not be functional. They will not be in control. But you note, as 
uh, Oumuamua sped away from the sun, its trajectory deviated from the expected. And uh, you expected its motion to be a kind of a herky-jerky acceleration, as you noted in your book. But in fact, it appears the acceleration was quite smooth. And you liken the odds of such behavior from a naturally occurring comet as about the same as the odds of natural geological processes producing a space shuttle. <laughs> yeah, um, because... Um you you take into consideration all these uh, anomalies that it showed, and each of them has a small probability. Um, usually in comets, uh, you see the cometary tail. Also, if suppose the cometary tail is not visible, there would be jets uh, that uh, change the spin of the object and introduce jitter to the object. None of these was observed. And then on top of that, for a, a comet, once it gets far enough from the sun, the water ice cannot sublimate anymore. It cannot produce the, the tail. And uh, therefore, you get a cutoff in the evaporation and no more force. There was no such a sudden change uh, in the case of Oumuamua. It, there was a, a smooth force that declined inversely with uh, distance squared, just like what you expect if it's sunlight pushing on a sail. And as you said, um, the, the object needed to be rather thin for the sunlight to be effective. And it turns out that just a few months ago, in September 2020, there was another object found where the reflection of sunlight gave it an extra push and there was no cometary tail. And then the, this object was discovered by PANSTARS, the same telescope that found the Oumuamua. Right. And the astronomers now, they were able to go back in time and they found that this is actually a rocket booster that was kicked into space in 1966 called the Lunar Lander Surveyor 2. We know that uh, that was a hollow structure that has very thin walls, and that's why it exhibited an extra push. So you don't need necessarily to have a light sail. You just need an object that is very thin, that has a lot of surface area for its weight. And in the case of the rocket booster, we know that we produced it. Clearly, it's artificial. In the case of Oumuamua, we don't know who produced it. So for the listeners who are not familiar with the term light sail, can you give us a parenthetical definition? So a light sail is basically a sail pushed by light, just like a regular sail on a boat is pushed by reflecting the wind or air molecules. Uh, so light is made of uh, particles called photons, and you can think of them as tennis balls that are bouncing off a surface or off a mirror. Uh, and as they do so, they give a push to that surface. And uh, in principle, you can propel a spacecraft if it's attached to a, a sail that is thin enough so that light gives it enough push. And uh, uh, we are actually developing this technology right now. It offers the advantage of the spacecraft not needing to carry its fuel. And in principle, the spacecraft can reach the speed of light using this method. This is part of the, the uh, Starshot initiative, I believe, which you were a part. Yes, in uh, May 2015, uh, a black limousine parked in front of the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard, and uh, uh, an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, uh, Yuri Milner, uh, came out of the limousine <laughs> and uh, entered my office uh, and sat on the sofa in front of me and said, uh, would you be interested in leading 
a project that would uh, aim to get to the nearest star within our lifetime. Now, Yuri was, uh, is the same age as I am, and that meant uh, within a couple of decades. And I knew that the nearest star is four light years away. So it takes light four years to get there. And if we want to get the spacecraft within a couple of decades to the Alpha Centauri system, uh, we need to launch it at a fifth of the speed of light. And uh, that's very challenging. And I, I told him, okay, yeah, of course, I will be very interested, but let me work it out with my students and postdocs and figure out which technology can do that. And uh, the only technology that... Uh, looked uh, viable in principle is uh, light cell technology where we shine a very powerful laser, uh, 100 gigawatt or so, on a sail that is roughly the size of a person uh, that weighs uh, less than a gram or a, f a few grams and uh, shine it for a few minutes and uh, then the sail will get to a speed of a fifth of the speed of light across a distance that is five times the distance to the moon. And, uh, uh, of course, the technology needed for that has to be developed. You need to uh, build a sail of sufficiently strong material that is highly reflective and doesn't absorb much of the laser light. Uh, otherwise, it will burn up. Uh, also, attach electronics to it, such as a camera, navigation device, communication device. But these things are easy to pack in less than a gram. I mean, we have it already in cell phones. And then you need to build that laser infrastructure, which is the most expensive part. Uh, so we are working on this technology now. Uh, the project was uh, announced uh, about five years ago. Do you think that your work on the Starshot project prejudiced you towards the idea that this object could be a light sail? Uh, it didn't prejudice me. Uh, it's just that uh, my imagination, of course, is limited to what... I know what I've experienced, and that's true of everyone. Uh, for example, when we developed uh, uh, radio communication here on Earth, soon afterwards, uh, people started imagining uh, receiving signals from the sky, and uh, the search for civil other civilizations uh, uh, started at that point for, uh, by, by looking for radio signals. And, uh, of course, uh, we always imagine what we are experiencing or familiar with and uh, I would just say that it broadened my range of uh, possibilities and uh, that, that I could envision for some uh, for, for, for that and it helped me recognize the possibility that Oumuamua may be a very thin structure but as I just said the, uh, we did detect a rocket booster that exhibited similar behavior and so you know, even without uh, having uh, the light cell in mind, you know, we, we know that the artificial objects that are thin enough are being pushed by light. There okay. is nothing really unusual about it. And uh, the fact that I thought about it because of my involvement is completely irrelevant. The question is, what is out there in the sky? And to be fair, uh, you guys did find uh, a second identified interstellar object, the, the second one known to traverse our solar system. It's 2i Borisov, and uh, right. you found nothing non-natural about that one. Uh, however, yes. um, you know, there are contrarians, and a researcher friend of mine mentioned that observations of Oumuamua are completely consistent with the acceleration and composition of a chunk of nitrogen ice with an albedo of 0 0.6. 
Which would mean it has kind of a neutral gray albedo. Nitrogen is produced in the interiors of stars uh, through the CNO cycle. The carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen are produced simultaneously. So it's very difficult to separate nitrogen from carbon. And if there is an object that contains nitrogen, it should also contain carbon. So when you evaporate the object, you would see carbon-based molecules. And the Spitzer Space Telescope put very tight limits on any carbon-based molecule around Oumuamua. And moreover, we don't know how you get nitrogen-based uh, uh, you know, objects. Um, some people suggested maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg. Uh, an iceberg made just of frozen hydrogen. Uh, and then, of course, hydrogen is transparent. So if you evaporate it, you won't see it. Uh, the problem with that proposal, as I wrote in a paper that with a colleague of mine, Tim Huang, afterwards, is that hydrogen is very easy to evaporate. So such an iceberg, if it uh, absorbs uh, starlight, would get uh, evaporated very quickly before it can reach us. So it cannot make the journey through interstellar space. And the same is true for another proposal that was made, that maybe it's a dust bunny, you know, like a collection of <laughs> dust particles like you find at home. And uh, it's sufficiently porous. So the conjecture was maybe it's 100 times less dense than air. It, just imagine a cloud of dust 100 times less dense than air. And then it's sufficiently lightweight so that uh, the reflection of sunlight can push it away. The problem with that is, as it gets close to the sun, like Oumuamua was, it gets heated by hundreds of degrees, and it's hard for me to imagine how it will have the material strength to withstand that heating and survive. So um, these were the alternatives suggested to the artificial origin by people that paid attention to the anomalies. So I highly re respect the scientists that came up with these ideas because they are actually attended to the anomalies. Most of the scientific community ignores the anomalies and just makes general statements out of prejudice. They say, oh, it must be a rock. Don't bother me with the details and business as usual. You know, that's much less professional. The, the appropriate response is through the scientific process when you are presented with some evidence that looks, uh, that doesn't quite line up with what you expected, you're supposed to put on the table possibilities. And these people did it and no, none of these possibilities appeal appeal to me that none of them looks more plausible than an artificial origin, and that's why I wrote the book. Uh, of course, it's possible that we haven't imagined one possibility, and and it's of natural origin. But you know, all of the possibilities that were proposed involve something that we have never seen before. So my point is simple: let's com continue to search the sky and find more objects. And then uh, when we find objects similar to Oumuamua, let's have a camera take a photograph of one of them by coming close to it. You know, when I go to the kitchen and I find an ant, I get alarmed because I know that there must be many more ants around. And the same is about uh, Oumuamua. We looked only for a few years and uh, we found uh, this object. So the, if we look for another few years, we'll find another one. The only reason we would not observe it or monitor a weird object of this type is if we always say it's never aliens, it's always rocks. If we have a prejudice and we put blinders, then we won't see it. If you're not ready to discover new things, you will never find them. So you write that uh, unfortunately catching up with and photographing Oumuamua is impossible and the data that we have is all we will ever have. 
leaving us to the task of hypothesizing explanations that fully account for the evidence. So have all the data from that 11 days of observations, has, has all that data been fully analyzed, or are there more revelations to be made? Yeah, all of it were, were, was analyzed. And um, uh, in, in fact, with my student, we looked at a few extra days of observations that were beyond those 11 days. And we found that because the object was changing its orientation relative to Earth as it moved along its trajectory, then these few extra days imply that it was even more extreme in its shape. So usually we're saying it, you know, it had to be at least 10 times longer than it is wide projected on the sky. But if you add these extra few days and, and you look at the variation in light, it should have been at least 30 times longer than it is wide. So even more extreme. My point is, all of the possible models for Oumuamua can be tested without even following Oumuamua. We just need to wait for another object to show up that shows similar anomalies. And surely, you know, something like that will come along uh, in the next few years. And then we should, of course, try to get as much data as possible. So it is uh, possible to make progress, I say, on, on understanding the nature of this class of objects that cannot be associated with anything we've seen before. And we will learn something new. Even if it's of a natural origin, we will learn a completely different mechanism that gives birth to such uh, weird objects. You note that before entering our solar system, the object occupied the LSR, or, or local standard of rest. Give us a definition of, lo of the local standard of rest uh, out beyond our solar system. Right. So that's the frame of reference that you get to when you average over the motion of all the stars near the sun. So each star has some random motion relative to the others. And if you average over all of them, you end up at the local standard of rest. So it's sort of like the public parking lot uh, of the galaxy nearby. And uh, Oumuamua was at rest in that frame. Uh, it's sort of like finding a car parked, but you can't tell which house it came from because it's not moving. And the stars are moving relative to that frame. So the motion of the sun relative to Oumuamua is the motion of the sun relative to the local standard of rest. Oumuamua was just like a buoy sitting on at rest on the surface of the ocean. And the solar system was just like a giant ship that ran into it. And then, you know, that brings in the question. I mean, only one in 500 stars was, is so much at rest relative to the LSR, the local standard of rest, as Oumuamua was. Why would an artificial object be roughly at rest in the local standard of rest? And the one possibility that I could think of is if it's a member of a grid of objects that are put there so that uh, uh, for navigation purposes, so that you will know your coordinates as you navigate through interstellar space. Uh, that's one possible explanation. Another one is perhaps it's part of a set of relay stations that uh, help uh, in communicating across vast uh, distances, just like we have on Earth. We don't know what the reason is because we haven't collected enough evidence about Oumuamua, but I think it's very intriguing and we should continue to search for more objects of the same. But unfortunately, uh, because it was at the LSR, our local LSR, uh, you cannot trace its origin. And you say that one reason, if it is of alien origin, that it was put there by the alien civilization 
that put it there would could be because they wanted to camouflage their identity. So in other words, yeah. they were looking to spy on us, but they did not they did not want to to be found themselves. Yeah, that's uh, one possibility, of course. Uh, uh, but we we will never know unless we find more. And um, uh, as to what the objects are made of, what their purpose is, um, you know, in principle, it would be best if we can land on one of them. Or uh, if we can find, for example, a meteor that came from interstellar space uh, that is artificial in origin, you know. So meteors are these objects that, collide with the earth and uh, they burn up in the atmosphere if they are smaller than the size of a person but if they are bigger than that a relic remains and uh, lands on the ground and that would offer us uh, uh, the possibility of putting our hands around such a technological relic if it's big enough Uh, so I think an interesting um, thing to do in the future is identify interstellar meteors uh, because then we can study uh, th- those that look unusual, and we would see that it's not a rock. Uh, we could also, in principle, look on the surface of the moon. The moon is just like a giant museum. It collects everything that falls on it because it doesn't have an atmosphere, so nothing burns up. And then uh, it doesn't have geological activity that will mix up uh, objects from the surface into the deep interior. So basically the moon collected everything that collided with it over the past uh, few billion years. And uh, when we establish a settlement on the moon, a sustainable base there, it would be interesting to consider it as an archaeological site and and search its surface for objects that do not look natural. Yeah, that's a great idea and and one that's already been written about. I've written about that. Paul Davies also... Uh, champion that idea back to umuamua you told the uh, one news outlet if i'm not mistaken that you thought that this object had been in our solar vicinity for at least ten thousand years how did you deduce that well based on its speed we can figure out uh, how long it will take it to cross the solar system the Oort cloud and it's uh, more than ten thousand years and obviously humans were not that interesting ten thousand years ago so <laughs> that leads me that leads me to the conclusion that uh, it was not sent because someone noticed us. You know, by the way, I, I don't think that we are that interesting even now. So Fermi's paradox shows arrogance. It, it implies that there is a good reason for a party of extraterrestrials to take place just at our, our home. You know, why, why would they come here in the first place? I think that we are as common as ants are on a sidewalk, you know, that what we have here is not unusual because we know that half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth roughly at the same separation. And if you arrange for similar circumstances, you might as well get similar outcomes. So I would argue that what we have on Earth is probably quite common out there. And uh, therefore, you know, we are not particularly interesting. Uh, when I met my wife, you know, she had the friends that used to wait for um, Prince Charming on a white horse to show up and make them a marriage proposal. You know, that never happened. So why would we, the human species, think that we are that special, that someone will show up and, and, and shake our hand and say, here I am. Uh, I mean, uh, most likely we are one out of billions that existed in the past or still exist, some of 
them might still exist. Uh, and, you know, nobody cares about us. And the Fermi paradox is simply Enrico Fermi made the observation supposedly over lunch one day with a colleague that uh, if, if the universe is teeming with alien technology and alien civilizations, then why, why aren't we seeing them? And of course, right. you know, that's been debated uh, till the cows have come home several times already. <laughs> but uh, that's basically the paradox. One thing to keep in mind is the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence was based for the past 70 years on searching for radio signals. And that is equivalent to uh, trying to speak on the phone. And for that, you need your counterpart to be alive. It's quite possible that most of the civilizations that existed in the past are dead by now. Uh, if you get a letter in the mail, for example, and the mail service is very slow, uh, the person who sent the letter might not be around anymore. And so, uh, you know, we can't have a phone conversation with the Mayan culture. They are not around anymore. But we can search for the relics in archaeological digs. And so Umuamua actually opens a new frontier, a new method for searching, which is based on relics floating in space. And the Drake equation, for example, that was used many times to encapsulate our uh, ignorance uh, about how many radio transmissions we should expect and so forth, uh, is not relevant here. All you care about is how many plastic bottles are there on the beach per unit area so that then you can calculate if you're sitting on the beach, what's the chance that next to your feet there would be a plastic bottle? So, you see, we if we search for those interstellar objects entering the solar system in our backyard, we can just figure out, you know, how big is that population? And it all depends of, uh, on how many such objects were produced over the past few billion years by other civilizations. They may not be around, but they left something. Just like we are sending out probes into interstellar space. Do you have any idea as how old this object might be? Oh, I would guess it's billions of years because that's the time over which stars like the sun uh, existed in the Milky Way galaxy uh, long before the sun was born. And um, most of the objects would be old uh, because that's, <laughs> if you imagine probes being sent at a constant rate for each star, then most of those that were deposited in space uh, were, were arrived there a long time ago. And uh, just like plastic bottles on the beach, you know, they are probably dysfunctional. They may ho have holes in them. They suffered a lot along their uh, trajectory. And that's why this one is tumbling. You know, it's not functional anymore. Uh, so that's, that would be my guess, that it's mostly space junk, space trash. But nevertheless, you can learn something about whoever produced it, from looking at it carefully. And so what you're saying is uh, that you don't think it's, if, it, if it is artificial and it was some sort of buoy or interstellar buoy or some sort of probe, that you don't think that it's operational. And was there any indication from your observations, if you're thinking about this as an artificial object or a spacecraft of some sort, is there any indication that, it, that for instance, that you pick up any sort of electromagnetic radiation from it that could be some sort of signal being broadcast back to the people who sent it, uh, to the species yeah, who so, sent it. So, so uh, about a week after the object was uh, discovered, um, I met with uh, Yuri Milner at his home, 
And uh, we discussed whether it might be worthwhile to look at this object, Oumuamua, with a radio telescope that Yuri had uh, access to. And we agreed to check it. And there wasn't any transmission at gigahertz frequencies, which is the frequency that uh, most radio telescopes operate at. And we couldn't see anything to the level of a cell phone, uh, less than a watt uh, coming from this object. Now, this doesn't say much because you could have transmission in a completely different direction that, and, and you can have it sporadically. So at the time that we were observing it, maybe that there was no transmission. But also you can imagine that the transmission is at frequencies very different from the ones we were looking at. Nevertheless, uh, one can say that there was no cell phone on this one. Even if this thing were a probe in the same way that our Voyager was a probe, and it were sending back signals in the electromagnetic spectrum. And let's just say that the reason you guys didn't detect any signals was because it was no longer operational. But let's say initially it was sending back some sort of signal in the electromagnetic spectrum. I mean, you got to think that, that to have any sort of one-way communication even, that uh, any signal that, let's say that, you know, the law of averages is this, this probe was at least sent from a star, a civilization around a star 100 light years away, maybe even 1,000 light years away, conservatively. What do you think? No, I would guess it's probably across the galaxy as a whole because... Across the galaxy. So so, so let's just say for speculation's sake, what do you think the mean distance would be, the average distance of the civilization that sent the probe if it were artificial and and if it were designed to communicate back and and that's a crazy thing because let's say that you know our galaxy is what 125 130,000 light years in diameter and uh, this thing is halfway across let's say it's 50,000 light years away what civilization would have the kind of patience to send a probe that would be communicating back to well, it, it, to a civilization it and and it would and, and you know communication you know, you can't break the speed of light with uh, electromagnetic communication, all right? So you're looking at a one-way trip back for any information it's downloading back to its, or, or it's uh, uploading back to its uh, parent civilization of maybe twenty-five to 50,000 light, 50,000 years. So what civilization is going to, uh, I mean, even if they're a cathedral building, very long-term <laughs> civilization, what civilization is going to have the patience to be listening for a signal for, for a probe that, you know, that was sent 25,000 years ago? Well, that's a big extrapolation, but uh, we know that the galaxy is 10 billion years old. And uh, then the question is, what would be the goals of a civilization that is, sticks around for billions of years? That's much longer than any of the times you were talking about. And uh, it's also possible there are von Neumann uh, uh, machines that uh, replicate themselves and produce more of the same. Uh, we simply do not know. And the best approach is not to speculate, but rather examine and uh, observationally what, what is around us. Uh, sort of like, uh, you know, looking at the neighborhood to see who might be your neighbors um, uh, without assuming anything, without a prejudice, because we might be surprised about their goals, about their infrastructure and so forth. Uh, and I should say that 
in order to explain Oumuamua as a member of a population of objects that, uh, you know, ha has a random chance of being inter intercepted by us, uh, you need uh, one such object for every volume associated with the Earth's motion around the sun. So in the solar system right now, there are a quadrillion such objects, meaning 10 to the power 15, huge numbers. So when I said, you know, <laughs> a lot of ants in the kitchen, it's really a lot. And um, that's why it doesn't make sense to chase one of them. But, 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 what um, so, you're saying, but to be clear, you're saying that, that these objects are natural objects. You're not talking about they're all, you know, you're not talking about a quadrillion alien probes. You're saying these are interstellar objects, a quadrillion. Is that right? No, no. I'm saying that if Oumuamua was uh, by chance intercepted by us, uh -huh. then you can do the statistics. We saw it after surveying the sky for a few years. And, and, and given uh, the fact that we saw one object, it tells you that there should be a quadrillion ones if it's a, one out of a family of you know objects that we randomly encountered. If it, the only way out of this number is if you imagine it targeting the center of the, of, of, of the solar system so that you know, it, it plunges very close to the sun. But if you just imagine it um, you know, not caring about the center of the sun, being on random orientations relative to the center of, uh, of the solar system, then uh, there should be a quadrillion of them in the solar system right now. And uh, it doesn't matter whether it's natural or artificial. Uh, this statement has to do with the statistics but of encountering. So, so then, so give us a, you know, quantify that number a bit. So are you saying that of, of that quadrillion, can you guesstimate how many would be artificial? No, we well, that is for us to find out. But uh, the point is, even if it's natural, uh, it's much more than we expected. So I wrote a paper forecasting how many rocks should be in interstellar space based on what we know about the solar system. And this paper was written with Amaya Moore-Martin and uh, Ed Turner a decade before Oumuamua was discovered. And uh, we predicted that PANSTARS, the telescope that discovered Oumuamua, will not find anything because um, w our numbers were a factor of 100 to 100 million smaller than needed for Umumu to be discovered. And, and uh, I, so afterwards, after it was discovered, Amaya Moro-Martin, my, my collaborator, tried to recalculate once again, do the math again in two papers that she wrote. And uh, she arrived at the same conclusion that even if Umuamua is a natural object, it's very difficult to account for such a huge population of uh, objects of its uh, size, uh, rocks of its size. But if it's a light sail, I should mention that it's much lighter weight uh, because uh, it's very thin. Uh, and then you don't need as much mass to make uh, quadrillion objects because uh, uh, you just need uh, roughly a, an asteroid of uh, a kilometer size to account for the total mass in those objects, quadrillion objects. But if it's a rock, you need a lot of mass and that well beyond what we expect based on what we know about the solar system. If you had to guess of, the, of your professional colleagues in the IAU, the International Astronomical Union or the American Astronomical Society, the AAS, uh, how many of them probably agree with your hypothesis, hypothesis that this could be 
an alien probe rather than just some sort of exotic space rock, what percentage uh, would you guess? I mean, a small percentage, and but uh, you know, science is not uh, a popularity contest. It <laughs> yeah. has to be. It has to be uh, based on evidence, right? So, if you were to ask people in Galileo's days, um, not many would agree with him. But the, everyone would agree that the evidence is anomalous, and people that paid attention to the anomalies came up with explanations like a dust bunny or a hydrogen iceberg uh, that are not more compelling. So, of course, you can have a prejudice and say my prior, uh, based uh, you know, Bayesian statistic, my prior is it must be natural. Then I don't care about the details. Well, then you are facing the risk of being just like the philosophers during Galileo's days that said, we know that the sun moves around the earth. We don't need to look through Galileo's telescope. And uh, they maintain their ignorance. That didn't change the reality, though, because the earth continued to move around the sun. And of course, you can stay within your comfort zone and ignore uh, the anomalies. Uh, but uh, my point is we want to know, you know, knowledge is really important of our environment um, because uh, it will change our perspective if we decide that we are not the smartest kid on the block. And, but you note in your book that there is an inherent uh, prejudice or bias, uh, maybe is a better word, uh, against people who are engaged in the search for extraterrestrial intelligent or techno-signatures uh, in the realm of astronomy, that, they, that, that the researchers engaged in this activity actually engage in hostility from other researchers. Right. Uh, right. There is a taboo on discussing this subject. And, uh, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because young people that see this uh, response decide not to work on this subject. There is no fresh talent entering the subject. And at the same time, there is not much funding going to this uh, uh, search. And, um, and that's a problem because it's just like stepping on the grass and then saying, look, it doesn't grow. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're not looking for evidence, you will never find it. And... Uh, I find this uh, surprising because the assumption that we are not unique and special should be mainstream. We know that the Earth-Sun system is common, and why would we assume that we are unique and special? You know, when my daughters were uh, infants, they tended to think that they are unique and special, and they have uh, uh, qualities that nobody else has. But as they went to the kindergarten, they realized they got a better perspective, and uh, obviously, the only way for us to mature would be to find evidence for others. I would expect that to be in the mainstream. It's much less speculative than the search for dark matter. You know, we don't know what, what most of the matter in the universe is. And there were proposals for specific types of particles that may exist out there. And then hundreds of millions of dollars were invested in the search for types of particles that people conjecture about. And nothing was found. So we only have limits right now. And uh, why would the search in the dark for the nature of the dark matter be part of the mainstream, whereas the search for technological signature, which in my opinion is much less speculative, is funded at a level that is a thousand times lower than that. Uh, in particle physics, in fundamental physics, there is a whole culture that uh, is centered around concepts that were not tested. In this case of the search for technological signatures, it's, you know, it's just 
strange because the public is extremely interested in these questions. It's one of the most fundamental questions. Are we alone? Are we the smartest kid on the block? Most fundamental in the sense that it would affect our society the most if we find an answer. And the public funds science. So how can scientists shy away from this question? And of course, one reason is because they say there is a science fiction literature that is not to be trusted. And there is uh, also discussions about unidentified flying objects, which is not to be trusted, according to the scientists. And so they don't want, they want to protect their image from being uh, put in the company of of those discussions. But uh, my answer to that is that in the dark ages, people claim that the human body has magical powers, that there is a soul, and therefore it shouldn't be dissected. One should not operate the human body. Imagine if scientists would say, oh, there is all this nonsense being said about the human body, therefore we do not want to discuss it at all. Uh, Where would modern medicine be? Uh, So science has an obligation to address questions that are of interest to the public, in, to which you can apply the scientific method. And in the context of searching for technological signatures, you know, we can use telescopes and build instruments that will inform us. And it would not be a waste of money more than the search for dark matter. And how can we uh, fund it at a level that is a thousand times less? That makes no sense. In my view, the scientific community is completely on the opposite side of where it should be. There is something twisted in the culture. And you find in physics, in, in theoretical physics, uh, discussions about the multiverse, about extra dimensions, string theory, uh, concepts that cannot even be tested in the foreseeable future, being mainstream. And the reason people work on them, it's just like a sandbox for people to show that they are smart. So they are doing mathematical gymnastics and demonstrating they can do manipulations and so forth. But that's not the the goal of physics, uh, to show that you are smart. The goal of physics is to describe nature. And we should pay attention to what nature tells us. If we see anomalies, for example, in the case of Oumuamua, everyone should be excited because that's an opportunity for us to find something new. But instead, you know, when I left a, a seminar room with a colleague of mine, where there was a talk about Oumuamua, the colleague said, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. (laughs) And I was appalled by this because it's exactly the opposite. When you see something that doesn't match what you expected, you should be thrilled. It's an opportunity to learn something. Absolutely. Why should you always... I mean, think about quantum mechanics. Einstein didn't like it. He didn't believe that there is spooky action at a distance. It definitely took him out of his comfort zone. But we know quantum mechanics is really important. It's part of reality. So who cares if it takes you out of the comfort zone? In fact, it's an opportunity for for you to learn something new. No, I totally agree. Um, so f- finally, you speculate what it would be like to actually encounter alien beings, which are much older than our own species. And you wrote in your book that you would like the opportunity to ask philosophical questions like, What's the meaning of life? And regardless of anyone's religion, religion does not explain in concrete terms why are we here, why is the universe structured as it is. And to me, you know, that's that's as fundamental a question as is there extraterrestrial life? Yes. Uh, so we were put in this world without a script. You know, we are put on a stage. Nobody tells us what's going on. And we see things happening... 
And uh, it's sort of like being in a play on a stage without a script. And you don't know who the director is and what you were supposed to do. And then you start to give meaning to what you're doing. Now, some people can enjoy just having good food. You know, that's something to enjoy. You can enjoy the company of friends. That's also good. I enjoy understanding what is on the stage, you know, that uh, figuring out who else is on the stage, you know, that's, that's part of the scientific process, uh, trying to learn about what's around you. But it doesn't address the meaning. What, why are you here and what are you supposed to do with it? And uh, I'm afraid that if we were to ask those uh, aliens that uh, had time to think about it, uh, they will not give us an answer. It may well be that, you know, it's sort of meaningless in, in the sense that, you know, any meaning that we can assign to our life has, is rooted on what's going on on Earth, right? And, and we know that uh, in a billion years, the sun would boil off all the oceans on Earth and life would not be possible on Earth. So uh, we would lose that meaning. So it's not, it's always limited in time, limiting, limited in space. And perhaps there is no sort of eternal meaning. The other thing uh, I would think is, you know, it, let's imagine a situation where we were, we were put on Earth by some advanced civilization that developed us in, in their laboratory and then seeded the Earth with the life that we see. And this is called direct panspermia, where we were planted on Earth. It, it, we didn't just came out of a soup of chemicals, but someone had us in a Petri dish to start with and then put us on Earth. In that case, uh, you know, the meaning of life comes from that uh, Petri dish, from that laboratory. You know, we, we didn't exist until that, that being created us, but, but it doesn't give us meaning and in the sense that we don't know who created that, that being that made us, you know, so it's still uh, an open question. Have you thought about how the cosmos itself physically is structured? Yeah, the, I mean, there are uh, two major uh, puzzles about the, the universe at large. One is that the laws of physics that we find here on Earth appear to apply everywhere. To me, that's remarkable, you know, because when we establish societal laws, uh, a lot of people don't obey them. And when I look at my daughter's rooms in the morning, uh, they are a mess. So chaos would have been much more natural, but somehow the universe is organized based on a fixed set of laws that we can uncover on Earth and they apply everywhere. That's uh, one amazing thing about the universe. And most physicists just take it for granted, but uh, I do not. And then the second uh, interesting question that relates to what you asked is how come the universe has very similar conditions all across uh, on very large scales? You know, if you look in one direction on the sky and you look at the opposite direction on the sky, there wasn't enough time for these two regions to communicate with each other because it took the entire age of the universe for light to arrive to us from the edge of the universe on one side, and it would take longer for it to get to the other side. So nevertheless, it looks as if those sides knew about each other. And uh, to explain that, uh, uh, there was a, a theory called inflation that uh, was proposed that uh, actually everything we see came from a, a tiny region that inflated the and um, uh, points that were in contact with each other were eventually separated uh, faster than light. And uh, in principle, that could explain this, this puzzle. 
you know, in general, I, I do find uh, a lot of things in the universe that I'm at all with respect to, and and they could have been different. And uh, I would say, to me, uh, you know, I, I adopt the definition of Spinoza for for God, which I simply identify nature with with God, with the sense of God, uh, and. Um, there is something to be admired about uh, nature. You know, it's not, <laughs> it has some beautiful features that should not be taken for granted. So, and as for Oumuamua, it was last seen headed for the constellation of Pegasus. Do you have any idea which star it might fly by first? Uh, we can forecast that, but I don't think it has special significance because uh, it's just that the sun gave it a kick, uh, like a buoy on the ocean kicked by a boat. And um, it's not as if uh, it was planned to be kicked in a particular direction. So I wouldn't assign significance to that. And obviously, there are more objects being kicked all the time. So, uh, so and you obviously, you know, again, you, you do not think uh, it is uh, operating under control flight, the bottom line. No. For, yeah, no, because it entered the solar system 10,000 years ago. We were not interesting back then. Uh, moreover, most of the uh, equipment in space is billions of years old, probably, because there are stars like the sun. Most of them formed billions of years before the sun. And uh, altogether, you know, it argues uh, that most of the equipment in space is this not functioning anymore. And um, so I'm, I'm more of the opinion that, you know, if you just, uh, go to the beach, you will find mostly plastic bottles that are punctured and not really operational. And and um, uh, and we don't necessarily deserve special attention. That's the other thing, that adapting this sense of cosmic modesty, in my view, is much more appropriate than claiming an important role in the universe. Uh, I mean, it started with uh, uh, the, the ancient Greek uh, philosopher Aristotle, who claimed that we are at the center of the universe. And that was flattering to the ego of many people. And they accepted that for a thousand years. But uh, eventually Copernicus and Galileo demonstrated that the earth moves around the sun. And uh, since then, I think since the Copernican revolution, I tend to accept that we are not privileged in any way, not even as biological creatures. And many people prefer to hold on to the notion that we are unique and special uh, because it flatters their ego. But, you know, I would say that as a matter of principle, it's much safer to assume that we are not privileged. When you look up at, an, at a clear night sky, what goes through your head? Oh, I, I look at the stars. I live in a suburb, so I can see the stars. Um, and then they look to me like lights in a giant spaceship moving through space and i often wonder whether there are other passengers looking at the same lights near other stars you know looking at the lights of the other stars including the sun and wondering the same thing so we are we are all sharing the same space big spaceship that has all these lights that we call stars when we are riding with the Milky Way galaxy through in the intergalactic space, we are so far from each other, those passengers, that, that we don't know about them. We don't know how many of them are alive, how many died, and uh, we don't know what their ambitions are and what, what 
they built and sent out to space. There is so much to know. You know, the, what we know is just an island in an ocean of ignorance. So that's why it gives me a thrill to be a scientist, you know, to open my mind to the possibility that we, during my life we will learn uh, about our environment, learn something new that we might not be alone. You know, that's that's exciting. If instead we always claim it's never aliens and everything is rocks, you know, we we behave just like that, that caveman that was presented with a cell phone uh, would say, oh, a cell phone is a shiny rock. So we are giving up on the opportunity to discover exciting things. And frankly, I don't want to live a life that is as boring as that. So, Avi, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? By email, uh, I don't have any footprint on social media because my wife, when we got married, asked me not to subscribe to those uh, uh, accounts. And I respected that, and it saves me the time. I don't need to pay attention to how many likes I have on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but it also keeps me... Uh, independent in terms of the way I think. And um, I like that. So I enjoy the company of rabbits, ducks, and birds when I jog every morning at 5 a.m., much more than the company of people. You know, I, I practiced social distancing long before it became trendy. Uh, but um, people can reach me anytime uh, through my email address, uh, which is on my website. If you just put my name in Google, you will find it. And the website gives also information about my research, my uh, essays in Scientific American. I, I publish once a week or two weeks. And uh, the books and pa uh, scientific papers that I published. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Avi Loeb, thanks for helping us better understand this intriguing interstellar object. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>